Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Hello and welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service. We're coming to you live from London. I'm James Menendez and we're going to start the programme in Hong Kong today. It is just eight days since Beijing's new national security legislation for the territory came into force and already the mainland is making its presence felt. Today, a ceremony was held to open a new national security headquarters in the city. The first time mainland Chinese intelligence officers have been able to operate openly in Hong Kong. At that ceremony, the Beijing official in charge of the new office, uh, Zheng Yanxiong, insisted his operatives would abide by the law, although the new security legislation makes it clear no Hong Kong laws apply to them. In accordance with the law, we will strengthen links with the Chinese Liaison Office and the Office of Commissioner of the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs at a working level. We will establish a system to coordinate with the Hong Kong Special Administrative Regions Committee for Safeguarding National Security according to the law. We will also perform our mandate in strict compliance with the law and be subject to supervision in accordance with the law. And we will not infringe upon the lawful rights or interests of any individual or organisation. Well, Mary Hoy is a reporter for the Courts uh, News website. She's in Hong Kong and on the line now. Mary, good to have you with us. Just tell us first of all about uh, this new headquarters, uh, the building and, and where it is. Sure. So this building, it's a hotel, mid-tier, four-star hotel, about 266 rooms, not very kind of ostentatious. Um, it's in the heart of Hong Kong, not in the central business district, but more of a residential area. It overlooks Victoria Park, um, which is a big park um, in Hong Kong, where most importantly, I guess, in this context, um, where the annual June 4th vigil is held and where many large protests usually start. And so the fact that the uh, the temporary offices for this mainland uh, national security office is being uh, stationed in this hotel, I think, says a lot. Um, it is very symbolic that it is overlooking these key protest sites. And I think it sends a clear message to protesters that the mainland security agents are watching very, very closely. Uh, shortly after the unveiling ceremony, the opening of the building, uh, the Hong Kong government announced a ban on all political activity in schools. What will that entail exactly? Well, first of all, it's not a surprising move um, from the government. It, it really carries on from, for example, their decision last week to ban the slogan, uh, the popular protest slogan, Liberate Hong Kong Revolution of Our Times. And now they're extending it more specifically into schools, um, saying um, concretely that this protest anthem uh, um, composed by an anonymous protester last year called Glory to Hong Kong is explicitly banned from schools, that um, no political activity can be allowed in schools because schools should be neutral and a place for learning. As to how exactly they're going to enforce that, it is unclear. If you have hundreds of students singing that song, are you going to uh, punish them all? And also if Students decide to sing, for example, a song from Les Mis, which is also uh, popular with protesters. Um, you know, what does the government have to say about that? It's uh, so far we have a lot of questions that have been un- 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 unanswered. Uh, 
Mary, thank you. Mary Hoy uh, joining us from Hong Kong. Well, how significant is the opening of this new office for Chinese security officers and how should other countries respond? I've been talking to Malcolm Rifkind, a former British foreign secretary who was involved in negotiating the treaty that led to the return of Hong Kong to China back in 1997. Well, it's what we fear. First, they were simply talking about, and that was bad enough, the national security legislation, but they would nevertheless respect Hong Kong's autonomy. We've always suspected they had intelligence people operating in Hong Kong. It would have been astonishing if they hadn't. But that was all sub rosa, as it were, never admitted. Uh, Now they're doing it openly, brazenly. And it's yet another death knell to two systems in one country. Death knell, is it already over or about to be over that notion? It's a gradual process. You see, the the Chinese government are hoping they can have the best of both worlds. They will not overnight destroy all the freedoms and turn Hong Kong into a carbon copy of communist China with total control of the Internet, with no personal freedom. Because if they did do that, most of the most able people in Hong Kong would bust a gut to get out of the place and never come back. And in addition to that, uh, the Hong Kong economy, the financial institutions, which have been the bedrock of Hong Kong's prosperity, must be already beginning to put together, however privately, contingency plans as to whether the time may come when they will move to Singapore or Taiwan or some other Asian hub. And so what the Chinese government risk, and indeed it's more than a risk, it's almost a certainty, is that if they destroy in its totality Hong Kong freedom, uh, then yes, they will control Hong Kong, but it will simply be an empty wasteland. In the run-up to the handover, did you ever think this would happen? Uh, Did you suspect this might be the the direction of travel? Well, there was always a concern that it might happen because, of course, the treaty lasts for 50 years and only 23 years have expired. But the whole concept of two systems in one country was a Chinese initiative, not not the present Chinese government, obviously, but Deng Xiaoping. Uh, He put forward the proposal of two systems in one country Uh, which we were able to negotiate around. And having proposed it, uh, it was likely that the Chinese, at least for a good number of years, would seek to honour it. Now, to be fair, until the last couple of years, most of Hong Kong's autonomy has been respected. Various attempts have been made to introduce restrictive legislation pushed by Beijing, but it's always been resisted and abandoned by the Chinese government. On this occasion, Xi Jinping is obviously a more uncompromising character Therefore, he has taken the action he has. The theory used to go that economic liberalisation, engagement on the world stage, that would lead to political change in China. That's never going to happen, is it? Not in the foreseeable future. But remember, that was never a certainty. It was more an aspiration, not an entirely unreasonable one. Because, for example, until Putin came to power, the early Russia, after the end of the Soviet Union, Gorbachev followed by Yeltsin, did want to do exactly what you've described, to want to move and become more like a Western country and with a liberal democratic system. Uh, the Chinese, until Tiananmen Square, um, might have been moving in that direction. It was always less likely. But what's happened in China is not just that they haven't moved towards democracy. China under Xi Jinping, today as we speak, is much more of a totalitarian state, an authoritarian government, than it was under previous communist leaders since Mao Zedong. And if you want evidence of that, just look at what they're doing to the Uyghurs. That's their own citizens in Western China of Muslim background, uh, almost a million of them incarcerated in so-called re-education centers, not for any crimes they've committed, but because as Muslims, they are deemed to be potentially dangerous to the Chinese state. 
That was uh, Malcolm Rifkin, uh, former British Foreign Secretary. Well, there was another broadside against China by the United States on Tuesday. The director of the FBI, Christopher Wray, gave a speech in Washington to warn that Chinese espionage was undermining America's economic prosperity and its national security. The greatest long-term threat to our nation's information and intellectual property and to our economic vitality is the counterintelligence and economic espionage threat from China. It's a threat to our economic security and, by extension, to our national security. But if you think these issues are just an intelligence issue or a government problem or a nuisance largely just for big corporations who can largely take care of themselves, you could not be more wrong. If you're an American adult, it is more likely than not that China has stolen your personal data. I'm joined on the line from Shanghai by Sean Ryan, who's founder of the China Market Research Group, a business consultancy. Thank you for being with us here on NewsHour. Perhaps I could just get you to respond to those words from uh, Christopher Ray. Is that what China's doing, do you think? Is that how you see it, fighting an economic and national security war, a covert one uh, against the U.S.? Well, it's good to speak with you, James. No, I actually see that China is just trying to improve the quality of life for its citizens, which it's done quite well since 1989. Um, If you look at it, in 1989, India and China had the same per capita GDP of 300 US dollars per person. Now, China's is at 10,000, while India's is only around 2,000. So obviously, the Chinese system has worked quite well over the last 35 years. Um, I think Christopher Wei from the FBI is just spreading fear-mongering about China's rise. This is part and parcel part of the Trump's administration to try to destabilize China, contain it, and drive a wedge between the UK and China or Canada and China and really any nation. They're really trying to um, push China away in order to contain their economic growth. Uh, If China has improved the lives of its citizens in, in that time, though, is it just by stealing other people's ideas? No, I think that's a misnomer. If you look at it, maybe 15 years ago, there was truth to it. 10, 10, 15 years ago, China really did steal a lot of um, IP issues. There was a lot of copycat uh, products. There was a lot of innovation stealing from companies like Huawei, which probably did steal source code from Cisco. But over the last five, 10 years, you have to give credit to the Chinese government. They've really improved IP protection. And it's right now what's happened is China's become one of the most innovative countries in the world. You know, Huawei is leading in 5G telecom um, deployment. You see companies like Alibaba or Tencent that are three to five years ahead of any company in the United States or the UK when it comes to mobile services. But you don't believe that there's no economic espionage going on now. I mean, there is, surely. Well, I'm sure there's some ec- economic espionage coming from China towards Europe and the United States, but I'm sure there is a lot from the United States towards China. I mean, when you look at Hong Kong, a lot of the activists like Joshua Wong, like Nathan Law, they're regularly meeting with Nancy Pelosi, you know, the the Speaker of the House in the United States or Senators Josh Hawley. So I think it's normal, not necessarily right, but it's normal for governments all around the world to try to destabilize other nations through economic espionage. And I think the United States is probably the worst actor uh, globally. Um, On Hong Kong, um Uh, Is China destroying or has it already destroyed that notion of uh, two systems, one country? Yeah, what's happened in Hong Kong is really sad. I think until last year, Hong Kong was one of the greatest cities in the world. It really was, um, you know, one country, two systems. People in Hong Kong 
had a vibrant economic system. They had, you know, an unfettered internet, no censorship. But I think what you had was the United States working with people like Joshua Wong and Nathan Law started to protest. And the protests spiraled out of control into riots. And I think what you've seen is these rioters really destroyed what was good about Hong Kong because the Chinese government had to act. You, they were, you can't allow people to set other people on fire. But you maybe can't it was, destroy yeah. an economy for an entire year. But and maybe it was the other way around. I mean, the, the protesters would say that uh, Beijing was trying to destroy Hong Kong by not allowing people the autonomy that they, they wanted. Yeah, and let's be promised. clear. I think there, you know, there are some concerns, and I think they have rightful concerns. But the big drivers were actually teenagers, you know, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, people who can't even get into an R-rated movie. And they somehow were held up as pro-democracy freedom fighters by Western governments that, again, I think are trying to destabilize China. This was not a pro-democracy freedom movement. This was a, a movement of bigotry against mainland Chinese. And it was a movement, again, I think, that was aided and embedded by Western powers like okay. the United States especially. We're out of time, I'm afraid. Sean Ryan, thank you for being with us. Sean Ryan of the China Market Research Group joining us from Shanghai. You're listening to NewsApp. Still to come on the programme, are you, like us, a bit confused when people talk about droplets and aerosols and airborne transmission when they talk about catching COVID-19? We'll speak to someone a little later who can uh, shed some light on it. If you make the droplets really, really small, they can float in the air and they can travel further, perhaps four metres or more. And that's called airborne transmission. More on that coming up in about uh, 15 minutes' time. Let's just recap a couple of our headlines from the newsroom this hour. Hong Kong's government's banned all political activity in schools just hours after China opened an office in the territory to enforce stringent new national security laws. And the OECD says more must be done to get multinational companies to pay their fair share of tax. This is James Menendez with News Out, live from the BBC. Long queues of cars have been seen on either side of one of Australia's busiest internal border crossings ahead of its closure. Drivers have been attempting to cross between New South Wales and Victoria. Officials in both states agreed to shut the border for an indefinite period with just two days' notice. That was after a recent surge in numbers of new coronavirus cases in Melbourne, the capital of Victoria. Here's the BBC's Shaima Khalil. For the twin cities of Albury on the New South Wales side and Wodonga on the Victoria front, this is one community that has now been divided into two after the border closure. At least 100,000 people now have to navigate how to move across in both directions. I say border. For this area, it essentially means driving up from one side of a bridge or a highway to another. If you live in Wodonga in Victoria, you could easily be driving up to Albury, where I am, every day for work or a hospital appointment or to visit family. Already things are looking quite different. Not far from where I am on the banks of the Murray River, which divides the two states, dozens of police and military personnel have been manning checkpoints, stopping people and checking their permits before they cross over. Many people here, like Alex Smith, the owner of a local cafe by the river, are still coming to terms with the sudden changes to their daily lives. I came down here this morning, I knew it would be different. It was eerily quiet 
um, in Albury, which is in New South Wales, was very quiet on the streets. You know, normally we're buzzing with activity, with people traversing the border to go to one town to the other. Certainly wasn't the case first thing this morning. And tell me about the logistics, because I presume that some of your staff lives in Wodonga in Victoria mm -hmm. and crosses over. What's that been like? About half of our team live in Victoria and what normally would be a five-minute trip to work uh, this morning I think was about an hour and 40. Uh, so, you know, we have to figure out how we're going to do that going forward. Um, is that going to be everyday occurrence or are things going to become a bit more streamlined? But um, certainly for us, we need to know when we can have the team here How has that affected the business? I mean, this time of year, we're in school holidays. Both states are in school holidays. Normally, you have a huge amount of people traveling across this border and stopping off in this beautiful park and visiting us. And that's not, not going to happen now going forward. Generally, I'd say 50 to 70% of our customer base is either traveling across or from Victoria. The mood here is one of anxiety and confusion. This is one community that hasn't been split like that for 100 years. This is also a step back for Australia, which until recently has had a good handle on controlling the virus. Uh, Sham Khalia reporting there from Australia. Now, two of America's most prestigious universities, Harvard and MIT, have asked a court to block an order revoking visas for foreign students after new rules were announced suggesting that these students would not be able to live in the US if their courses were only taught online. Because of the pandemic, many universities have been teaching students remotely, and that looks set to continue. Harvard said that its law school and five of its graduate schools will be online only and that only 40% of undergraduates would be invited to live on campus and would also learn uh, remotely. Uh, let's talk to Sarah Spritzer, Director of Government Relations for the American Council on Education, which uh, represents hundreds of uh, uh, higher education institutions. Sarah's in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the programme. Uh, just first of all on this uh, legal move by Harvard and MIT. I mean, this seems pretty extreme. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, extreme because I think the actions taken by the administration are extreme. Um, as Harvard President uh, Larry Bacow stated, you know, this order came down without notice and its cruelty is surpassed only by its recklessness. Cru it's confusing yeah. and worrisome. Yeah. Cruel cruelty. Why? The, the university is worried about the impact on, on students. Yes. So all of a sudden, international students are basically being told that they are going to either have to leave the U.S. or risk being deported if their institution, because of the pandemic, has decided to go online only for the fall. Um, if students do have to do their course from their home countries, I mean, that's not the end of the world, is it? It's not. But what we found is in the spring, when institutions had to close down, a lot of our international students actually decided to shelter in place and decided that it was safer to stay in the U.S. and to complete their courses while here. And so many of them actually didn't leave the U.S. or return to their home countries. And the, the risk of deportation, just I mean, how many students are we, are we, are we talking about? So in the U.S., we have over uh, 1 million international students. I'm not sure how many actually remained in the U.S. when our schools shut down in the spring, but we believe many of them are here, and this sends a very unwelcoming message um, to those international students. 
And how damaging is all this for, for the universities? I mean, does it have a financial impact at all? Well, you know, institutions were making very thoughtful plans moving into the fall, um, and those were already being put in place. And this really upends a lot of the careful planning that was already being done. And is there a risk to, to, to scientists who may have been doing research into the coronavirus? I mean, is that a factor here too? Yes, very much, because if labs are shut down and um, graduate students, for example, are unable to do that research, um, this means that they could, they could have to be forced to leave the U.S. Other than the legal route, is there a, another way around it at all? I mean, could the university start offering some classes face-to-face, for example? Well, we're not sure. We're continuing to to monitor and see if DHS um, puts out additional guidance. Right now, it's very confusing. There's not a lot of details in what, what's included in that guidance. Um, I think right now we are communicating with Congress and others within the administration about just the really worrisome um, issues that this is causing and really upending the plans that we were making for the fall. And are you getting much support from those on Congress? Yeah, we're we're actually starting to hear from a lot of members of Congress. Um, I think that this is guidance that was issued by the Department of Homeland Security without a lot of understanding about the long-term implications that this was going to have. I mean, I suppose they would say that this is just about uh, protecting people and stopping the spread of a, a deadly virus. But I think if that if that is the actual goal, then forcing these students to return to countries where they are facing travel restrictions, border closures, that's only going to cause um, more health concerns for our international students. And and is it right that you, this this was sprung on you that many of the institutions that you represent just simply didn't have any any notice about this? Yeah, so so in the spring, we actually had guidance from the Department of Homeland Security that gave our students and our institutions a lot of flexibility. They basically said if schools had to pivot to online-only instruction, international students could remain in the U.S. or they could return to their home countries. And so we were expecting the same type of flexibility for the fall semester. Uh, there isn't much time to go before, you know, term starts. How, I mean, when, when do you think this is all going to be resolved, if at all? I'm not sure. I've already seen institutions start to communicate to their international students that they are looking at making adjustments um, to their fall calendars and their operational structures to see if they could offer more in-person classes um, for those international students as a way to allow them to stay in the U.S. Mm. Uh, Thank you very much. That was Sarah Spritzer, who's uh, Director of Government Relations for the American Council on uh, Education. Uh, There's a lot more, of course, on the coronavirus. We're going to be talking about it uh, uh, more in the course of this programme, but online, bbc.com forward slash news, including uh, this, that the US has now registered another record daily tally of new confirmed cases, now rising to 60,000. bbc.com forward slash news. You're listening to News Out. Do stay with us. We have got a lot more to come in the next half hour of the programme. Don't go away. In our new podcast, The Cone, we'll be taking a different African story every week, often suggested by our audience, and investigating it with the journalism of the BBC African Newsroom. Search for The Cone wherever you got this podcast. Welcome back to uh, NewsAir. Now, Britain's senior finance minister, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, has been setting out uh, his plans to try to project 
protect rather jobs in the UK as the country tries to emerge from lockdown. Let's talk to our political correspondent, uh, Rob Watson. Rob, just take us through some of what uh, he announced a little earlier. Yes, James. So it's essentially in two parts. One is about jobs and the other one is about spending. So as far as jobs are concerned, essentially what the government is doing is offering up some money to encourage companies, private sector companies, to take on young people, particularly those under 25, and it will subsidise, government will subsidise the wages. And it's also offering the government money to private companies to keep on workers. One thing I should quickly say about this job scheme is that compared to the current unprecedented furlough scheme in this country where the the government is essentially paying the wages of, of 9 million private sector workers, this is much smaller, which is why some people doubt its efficacy. The second part of the plan, we all know that the UK is very much a consumer-driven economy. We love to go out and shop, buy, spend, do stuff. It's about tax cuts to to stimulate that kind of behaviour. Including uh, some money to encourage people to eat out in restaurants, is that right? Yes, absolutely astonishing. For the month of August, if you you go out to a a pub or restaurant where they've signed up to this scheme, uh, the government will chip in. I think it's about £10 a head for your meal. So I've already been uh, planning where I'll be taking the family in August. But it's, I think it's worth something like $750 million, so not to be sneezed at. Yes, feel free to invite your News Hour <laughs> colleagues as well. Just on the, on the, on the furlough uh, scheme, wh- when will that end and have there been calls for it to be extended instead? So it'll be phased out at the end of October, and absolutely there have been calls for it to be extended, mainly by the opposition Labour Party, which is saying, look, there are certain sectors of the economy, which even though the lockdown has begun to be unwinding, that you still have tourist industry, for example, people aren't coming to the UK, what on earth are they they going to do? And, And of course, that is the fear in this country. I mean, I go back to that point, the government is currently in an unprecedented way, basically paying for 9 million private sector workers, many of them sort of sitting sitting at home. And the fear is, of course, that there will be mass unemployment in October if nothing is done. And the concern is that these schemes, while very ambitious in normal times that have been announced today, that they just won't be up to the, the scale of stemming the, the sort of tide of job losses we're already seeing on a daily basis in the UK, James. Yes, I was just going to say, I mean, on a political level, uh, I mean, I guess on a human level as well, that must be forefront of the, of the government's minds, that there's going to be an entire lost generation who just won't be able to get into work. Uh, absolutely. Briefly on the figures, I mean, there are already half a million people unemployed who are under 25. That's a doubling. And 700,000 people are just leaving school and entering the labour market. And of course, for the, for the Conservative government, haunted as uh, people of a certain age will remember by mass unemployment of the 1980s, this is something they will want to avoid. Can they avoid it? Well, it's a tough challenge. Rob, thank you. Our political correspondent, uh, Rob Watson there. You're listening to NewsHour live from the BBC in London. I'm James Menendez. Now, for the first time, the World Health Organization has acknowledged emerging evidence that the coronavirus can be spread by tiny droplets that linger in the air. Until now, the WHO has said it's larger droplets from coughs and sneezes landing on surfaces that's been the source of infection. But a few days ago, more than 200 scientists published an open letter accusing the World Health Organization of underestimating the possibility of airborne transmission. I've been talking to the organization's special envoy for COVID-19, Dr David Nabarro, and I asked him first to explain the shift uh, in the WHO's position. 
the World Health Organization's technical team said very clearly that the primary mode of transmission is through droplet spread. These are small drops of respiratory secretion that come out when we are talking, coughing, sneezing, or just about anything else. And they project on average less than one meter out of the mouth, but they might project a little bit further so in order to deal with this droplet transmission, we've said one meters, absolute minimum, two meters, ideal physical distancing. Now, if you make the droplets really, really small, they can float in the air and they can travel further, perhaps four meters or more. And that's called airborne transmission. Now, these really small droplets we've always known can occur. For example, when a patient is in intensive care and you are removing a tube as you take them off the ventilator, there's an incredible coughing that goes on, which leads to a hugely powerful expiration of air. Some of the droplets that come out then are really small. And then you worry that you can get much more transmission than just the one to two meters. And that's called airborne, as I've said, and the process is called aerosolization. It does occur, and the point that's been made over the last few days is from some researchers saying aerosol transmission is more important than you've been saying in the WHO. Is that a fair criticism, do you think? Well, what we've said all along is that it's a means of transmission that occurs, but it's not the main means. What I do know is that this aerosolization is not common. Why do you think it's not common? I suppose people listening to this might think, well, if someone coughs or sneezes, yes, you know that you admit some sort of large particles of saliva yeah. that may be infected, but it stands to reason that there may be a cloud of smaller particles. Yes. Every time you're looking at how diseases are transmitted, you're trying to work out what is the main means of transmission, and then you're also trying to make sure that the outliers are included. There's a particular form of breathing that seems to be associated with a higher risk of creating these minute particles that can go a long way, i.e. the particles for airborne transmission, and that is loud singing because we've got evidence that there are some places where you've had choir practices where even though people practice normal physical distancing, the COVID spread and caused quite a significant outbreak. Doesn't it nevertheless have fairly big implications for the way we might want to protect ourselves? And I suppose I'm first of all thinking about health workers. Do they need to be wearing, as a matter of course, proper respirator masks then? Yes, I think your point is correct. Health workers ought to be wearing respirators. Secondly, it is really important that health workers also have visors so they are protected from the possibility of stuff coming into the eyes. Thirdly, we've probably got to give more attention at all times to the possibility of two metres not being enough for people in these high-risk settings, of which I include singing and also health worker locations. Dr David Nabarro, uh, the WHO's uh, special envoy for COVID-19. 
Well, Nigeria, with its population of nearly 200 million, has so far had relatively few cases of coronavirus, just under 30,000 confirmed infections and 669 deaths. But numbers are going up even as lockdown restrictions are being eased and there are concerns about a surge in cases. At the same time, there's mistrust all over the country, with some people not believing the virus is real. The BBC has been given exclusive access to a hospital in the country's main city, Lagos, where doctors and nurses are working on the front line of the pandemic. Yamisi Adagoke reports. How are you doing today, sir? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Let me check your oxygen levels, sir. Dr. Kase is a few hours into his shift at the Lagos University Teaching Hospital, a sprawling facility in Lagos. He'll be here for at least the next eight hours, and in Nigeria's hot and humid climate, the protective gear he's wearing can be uncomfortable. But coronavirus cases are on the rise, so staff are busy. It's one of our severe ones that uh, we're paying very, very close attention to. He's checking on a 75-year-old patient. Like many hit hardest by the virus, he has pre-existing health conditions. He was at the hospital for a routine procedure when he collapsed. He looks frail and is wearing an oxygen mask because he's still struggling to breathe. He tries several times to lift up his arms but can't quite manage it. If you, see the if you saw the way I fell down, it was people around that came to rescue me. It was as if there were no bones in my body. The patients here vary in age. A few are just getting past the worst of the virus. They're sitting up, reading their Bibles or using their phones. Others are still too ill. For most of the people we are seeing here, they either came in either moderately or critically ill. If they need to go on a ventilator, they're sent to a different hospital. Unlike several other parts of this hospital, you can tell that the ward has been newly renovated. It's brightly lit. The beds and fixtures all look new. Successive governments have been accused of underfunding Nigeria's healthcare system. Ask the doctors here and they'll tell you that COVID is putting a strain on a system already stretched thin. Dr Akase has worked in infectious disease for many years, but says nothing compares to this. He's now staying in accommodation at the hospital and hasn't seen his family for nearly two weeks. So when you're going home, you're thinking, OK, so this, should he have done this? Of course, then there are those that died, so you get to carry that with you. One reason people aren't going for testing or treatment in time is because there is a belief that the virus isn't real or that its scale is being exaggerated. Such rumours gain traction after a video claiming to show an empty isolation centre was shared online. We can say that we have about 800 people. Where are the 800 people here? The 600 capacities isolation centre. The government said the video was misleading, but on the busy streets of Lagos, many are still sceptical. Isolation centre, people are dancing, eating, there's no corona. I said it on YouTube now. It's not real. They are using it to defraud the masses that we are already suffering. Coronavirus is in abroad, not here, in Africa. No one that we spoke to was wearing a face covering or a mask or was adhering to social distancing. These things are mandatory by the Lagos state government. And as the numbers continue to increase, things like this are a big concern. Despite the disbelief outside, the suffering inside the wards is very real. I was good as dead. I thought it was all over. Don't pray to have it. It's not that bad. This middle-aged woman lost her sister to complications stemming from COVID and now both she and her nephews have been admitted with the virus. 
Like many countries in the world, Nigeria is opening up again after a tough lockdown period. Millions of families were impacted by the restrictions and Nigerians are eager for things to return to normal. But people not following safety advice makes things harder for people like Dr Akase, for whom the pandemic is a daily reality. This is not just among street people, ignorant people. You have seen this among educated people. It's a real problem and I think this will complicate efforts in our country to a large degree. Dr Akase ending that report by Yamisi Adegoke. The president of Serbia, Alexander Vucic, has told demonstrators not to attend anti-government protests to prevent uh, the spreading of COVID-19. His intervention comes after riot police last night fired tear gas to disperse protesters who stormed parliament in response to the imminent imposition of a coronavirus curfew in the capital, Belgrade. Television pictures uh, from the city showed scenes of mayhem with cars set on fire and confrontations between protesters and police. For more details on what happened, I've been speaking to Milka Domanovic, who's the editor of Balkan Insight in Belgrade. Yesterday, we had a address by the Serbian president, Aleksandar Vucic, who announced that there will be reimposition of restrictive measures, including the curfew for the weekend. And uh, right after that, spontaneously, people started gathering in front of the Serbian parliament. But I must say that this was probably only the tip of the iceberg because that people were not only protesting against these new lockdown measures, but against the overall poor official handling of the coronavirus crisis. So I must remind you that at the very beginning of the crisis in early March, we heard some official messages that this is a ridiculous virus and that people could freely go to Milan to some shopping. And then we had some really restrictive measures. But after about three months in early May, these measures were lifted before the election campaign. Right, so is is the suspicion amongst the president's opponents that he eased the restrictions to try and improve his chances in the election? Actually, there is a suspicion that these measures were lifted so we could hold the election in old-fashioned way, and we heard that this was safe. So in the meantime, there were political gatherings, there were even large football matches with thousands of people, who did not practice social distancing. So everything seemed pretty normal. And furthermore, I must say that the official statistics that was reported during the time when it comes to the number of uh, people infected by the coronavirus and people who died from coronavirus was false. Colleagues from Balkan Investigative Reporting Network in Serbia published that from the period of mid-March until the early June, there were at least twice as more people who died from coronavirus than it was officially announced. So all these things combined were actually the reason for people going out to the streets last night. And yet if some people are are unhappy about the way the government's handled this, I mean, the president won a landslide election, so lots of people must, must like what he's doing. 
Yes, uh, I assume so. But then again, there is a lot of outrage out there how this crisis was handled, how many things were not transparent, and how people are now again being blamed for not respecting the measures. So it's not the government who handled it wrong, it's the people. And so the people are now angry. Milka Domanovic of uh, Balkan Insight, speaking to me from Belgrade. You're listening to Nisa. A reminder of our top story today on Newsout, Hong Kong's government's banned all political activity in schools there just hours after China opened an office in the territory to enforce stringent new national security laws. Uh, speaking uh, to us a little earlier, Malcolm Rifkin, a former UK foreign secretary, warned China was destroying Hong Kong's identity. What the Chinese government risk, and indeed it's more than a risk, it's almost a certainty, is that if they destroy in its totality Hong Kong freedom, Uh, then, yes, they will control Hong Kong, but it will simply be an empty wasteland. Also today, the OECD says more must be done to get multinational companies to pay their fair share of tax. And Indian police have shot dead a close associate of a notorious gangster who's still on the run after a deadly gun battle with officers. This is James Menendez with NewsHour. We're going to head to Burkina Faso in West Africa now, where a number of mass graves have been discovered near a town in the north of the country where government forces have been fighting an insurgency by jihadists. According to the group Human Rights Watch, 180 bodies have been found in the past few months, many of them blindfolded and bound and with bullet wounds. Uh, Corinne Dufka is the group's West Africa director, and she's on the line now from Washington, D.C. Corinne, good to have you with us here on NewsHour. Just take us through this, if you will. From the evidence you've gathered, um, who are the victims? Yes, according to the residents with whom we spoke, the the vast majority are believed to be suspects that were picked out by the army, either in Jibo, uh, which is really in the epicenter of the conflict in in northern Burkina Faso, or during military operations. Uh, The majority are Pol or Fulani, and um, uh, you know the conflict is really underscored by an ethnic dynamic because the jihadists have largely concentrated their recruitment on the Pol or Fulani, and the government then has accused. collectively accused and punished this members from this ethnic group for being for their perceived association with the jihadists. And how clear cut is is the evidence that you've gathered that uh, it is the army who's responsible? Well, the the residents believe that it's the army for a few reasons. Number one, because Jibo is a it's a town with a heavy military presence. Uh, there's a curfew, um, and it's effectively controlled by the military. So they doubted that any other armed groups would be able to drive around in the middle of the night in heavy trucks um, and shoot people who were then found dead uh, in groups from three to twenty the next morning. Um, also, about ten of our witnesses recognized people among the dead uh, who they had seen uh, or had been credibly reported to have been picked up uh, by the army in Jibo um, in the days previous uh, to their execution. Uh, The government has suggested that it could be militants wearing stolen army uniforms. Does that, uh, is that credible in your, from your point of view? 
Well, not really. I, I, I mean, again, it's because Yibo is controlled by by the military, and uh, the witnesses didn't even say that they saw that they witnessed actually any of the killings. Uh, but um, so this is what they've said. But this is why we're also asking for uh, uh, pr- uh, an in depth investigation. This is not the first time that we have documented um, allegations like this by the army. We've documented several hundred allegations, extrajudicial killings of suspects by them since two thousand and seventeen. Um, the jihadist insurgencies in, in this part of the world, I mean, as I understand it, Burkina Faso had managed to, to escape the worst of it until uh, a year or two ago. I mean, from everything you, you're saying, that's that's not the case now. Things sound pretty bad. No, I mean, in the Sahel, it's been an absolutely devastating few years in human rights terms. I mean, there are literally hundreds of people being executed by the army, by the jihadists, and by uh, pro-government civil defense groups. And and the jihadists have increasingly been um, been attacking in Burkina Faso, and then, of course, moving south and now threatening Cote d'Ivoire, uh, where there were attacks a few weeks ago, as well as Togo and Ghana and other countries. So the situation uh, is really uh, deteriorating, and, and civilians and suspects are, are really paying a very heavy price indeed. And just one final thought. I mean, have you contacted the government about your, your findings? I mean, what have they told you? Yes, we always send a, a summary of our findings to the government. Uh, they, the Minister of Defence wrote a letter in which he uh, committed to investigate the killings. Um, but again, you know, it's not the first time that they have made these co- these these commitments. So we're asking them this town this time to make good on those commitments because again, this kind of aggressive counterterrorism strategy um, is unlawful and it's only pushing more and more young people into the hands of the jihadists. Thank you very much. That was Corinne Dufka, um, uh, West Africa Director for uh, Human Rights Watch, talking to us uh, from Washington. Now, there's a warning today about the potentially disastrous decline in insect populations in the UK and around the world. The conservation charity, the Wildlife Trust, says numbers of insects are close to collapse and it's calling today for ambitious targets on pesticide reduction to stem that decline. I've been talking to the head of the organisation, Craig Bennett, and asked him first to tell me how bad the situation is. I think it's catastrophic for insects and in many countries across the world. Certainly here in the UK, the evidence is that the abundance of insects may have fallen by as much as 50% or more since the early 1970s. And that's certainly true in many countries across Europe and in North America as well. I mean, insects are absolutely the the foundation for so many other species in the food chain and in our ecosystems. And if actually you have a collapse in the abundance of insect populations, you also have a collapse in bird and bat populations and so many other species as well. So there's so many ways in which we absolutely depend on insects for our survival and for our ecosystem health. It's crazy, really, but we've let this happen, a collapse in insect numbers around the world when it's just they're so important to us. And is it just a matter of cutting down or trying to completely abolish the use of pesticides or is it different sorts of pesticides? What's the way forward as far as that's concerned? Well, we're not uh, calling for the complete abolition of pesticides. We know that there will be times when they need to be used. But the fact is, is time and again in industrialised agriculture, we're seeing pesticides now being used on a kind of routine basis and in a kind of very lazy kind of way. I think there's lots of work now that shows that you could easily cut the amount of pesticides that are used in half and still have the same productivity. So what we want to see is a cut in pesticides in half 
by 2030. Just thinking about uh, the European question and the relationship that Britain's going to have with the European Union when the transition period ends at the end of this year and and we're properly out of those uh, structures, is that going to make a difference? Are you worried that in this country some of those ambitions, those targets are just going to fall by the wayside? The Wildlife Trust are really concerned about what might happen to environmental protections in the UK after Brexit. I mean, we've had solemn promises and their promise was to maintain and enhance environmental protections as we Brexit. But actually, we're really concerned about whether they will do that or not. We need to see the UK government put in place a pesticide reduction target, just the same as that now being proposed for the EU to halve pesticide use by 2030. But we also need to see a real commitment to make sure that they uphold these standards in future trade deals. And a very big concern we have is that in trade deals, for example, with the United States, they might allow the import of food to the UK that has been produced using pesticides that are banned here in the UK. Take, for example, neonicotinoid pesticides, which are very dangerous for bees and other pollinators. So let's see that clear ban. Uh, It's critically important to stop the imports of food to the UK that have been made to a lower standard than are being used by farmers here. That was uh, Craig Bennett, who's uh, head of the Wildlife Trust here in the UK. Uh, Don't forget, if you want to get in touch with us at BBC NewsHour or at James Menendez uh, on Twitter. Uh, But for me and the rest of the team here in London, thanks for listening today. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Until then, take care. Bye-bye. Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts.